Hello, and welcome to the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. This is podcast number 20, and in today's episode, I want to talk about Turkey and whether or not Turkey is in fact a true ally of the West and what its position is in trying to detect and deter acts of terrorism. Turkey has been a a fascinating nation throughout much of history, going well before the establishment of the Turkish Republic in the aftermath of World War I. Historically, and I say this as a former linguist, someone who taught linguistics for more than a decade and a half at university here in Ottawa, the land which is now modern-day Turkey was once believed by linguists, more specifically historical linguists, as the birthplace, if you will, of Indo-European, which is the language family that later led to languages such as English, French, German, Russian, etc. I don't think that theory is held holds much water nowadays. I think that Indo-European is now seen as having seen the, the light of day, if I can use that term, more in sort of Central Asia, the Caucasus. But nevertheless, it was at one point seen, uh, Turkey was seen as an important part in the development of a language family which has come to dominate politics, economics, and the military for a very long period of time. The second reason why what is now called Turkey was on the map for centuries was the existence of the Ottoman Empire from the better half of 12th, 13th centuries until its dissolution in the aftermath of World War I. The Ottoman Caliphate, Caliphate being the seat of Islam, the most important part of the Islamic faith community, if you will, was so dominant that it controlled not only modern-day Turkey, but most of Eastern Europe. It spread across North Africa into the Middle East. And in fact, as late as the 1680s, the Ottomans threatened the West in their siege of Vienna. And it was only due to the very heroic defense by the citizens and neighboring countries in the late 17th century that prevented the Ottomans from taking what is now Austria and then perhaps moving even further westward into what modern-day Germany and France. Very analogous to what happened in the late 18th century with the infamous battle at by Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, at Poitiers, in which the very important and, and insurgent Islamic empire of the first century after the death of the Prophet Muhammad got as far as southern France before it was turned back. The third reason why Turkey has been on the radar, if you will, and as an important country in the West for the better part of a century, is the fact that Turkey became a member of NATO when that alliance was formed in the aftermath of the Second World War. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was a very important military alliance that protected the West's interests throughout the Cold War, so throughout the time after the Second World War, when there was a competition for dominance between the United States and the Soviet Union, many of the countries of of Western Europe and and Canada and the United States created this alliance to beat back, if you will, the onslaught of Soviet influence into the West. Of course, the Soviets did essentially take control of much of what is now Eastern Europe, Poland, then Czechoslovakia, Romania, Bulgaria, Hungary, etc., And we had the infamous Cold War between the West and the East. We had the Berlin Wall in the 1960s, et cetera, et cetera. And and Turkey was kind of this outlier. It is not really part of Europe, although it kind of straddles the European-Asia 
continent, if you will, and it became a very important bulwark position, if you will, for NATO in that area between Europe and Asia. NATO, uh, the NATO partners had many military bases in Turkey. There were a lot of uh, spy flights that left Turkish territory to go over the Soviet Union to try and take pictures of and keep track of Soviet missile development and Soviet military movements. And as a result, Turkey has been seen as a major partner for NATO and by extension the West since that time. I think though that in 2019, we can ask ourselves whether or not Turkey is still in our ballpark, if you will, in our backyard, if in fact we should consider them as an ally to the West or whether or not the country is shifting, if you will, to either siding with the other partners that we do not see as, as, as part and parcel of the Western alliance or if it's becoming independent. And I think that one reason why we might want to ask ourselves this question is that there have been a number of events in the past five to ten years that strike me certainly as a question mark as to where alliances land in Turkey. Does the current Turkish government see itself as a major partner for NATO? Does it see itself in the ambit, if you will, of the Western nations? Or is it in fact morphing into something different? And a lot of these questions arise primarily from one person, and that's the president of Turkey, President Erdogan, who's been in power for, for some time. And I think we have to acknowledge that a lot of what he's done lately legitimately forces us to ask whether or not he sees himself as part of the West. He certainly has been very insulting towards many countries in the West in, in recent years. And I think there are a couple of events recently that point to this, this question. First and foremost, the presidency of Mr. Erdogan has this obsession with a group called the Gulenists. And the Gulenists are a religious group. They are led by a man called Fatullah Gulen, who lives in, of all places, Pennsylvania. His movement is seen by the Erdogan government as a threat to Turkey. He certainly has claimed that an attempted coup by the Turkish military, a few members, I should stress, of the Turkish military back in 2016, was in fact uh, driven by, ordered by, this spiritual man, Mr. Gulen in Pennsylvania, and that it is, was in fact an attempt to overthrow the Turkish government, the democratically elected Turkish government, and replace it with a, essentially a religious movement. There's a lot of debate about this. I don't see a lot of support for Mr. Erdogan's argument, but what I find really interesting is that in the aftermath of this coup attempt in Turkey in 2016, that tens of thousands of people, probably more than 100,000 people, uh, have lost their jobs. Thousands have been arrested. The figures that I'm seeing here from a Guardian article say that 130,000 people who are perceived or accused of having links to the Gulenist movement were dismissed from state jobs in sectors such as the police, the judiciary, academe, and other public sector. In addition, 77,000 have been arrested. So that what this points to is, is Mr. Erdogan's obsession with this religious movement, this conviction that it is not really just a movement that seeks to serve the spiritual needs of Turks, but is somehow this fifth column, if you will, that's trying to overtake the government. And as a result, 
the government, which one could expect to, to take some action in the aftermath of an attempted coup, has simply overreacted to an incredible degree such that Turkish society, three and a half years later, is still seeing the aftermath of government repression on a whole bunch of levels. This repression is now manifesting itself in areas that have nothing to do with the coup in 2016. So there's a, an article that I just came across the other day whereby a Turkish engineer and human rights activist was sentenced to 15 months in jail in Turkey for having published a study in which he noted that there was a link between pollution, i.e. toxic pollution, in Turkey and a very high incidence of cancer. What this suggests is that the government is trying to muzzle, trying to quiet down people who question any aspect of what the Erdogan government is doing. So, and, when, and of course, Turkey is not the only place where we're seeing this. We do see a, a lot of dismissal of science in the United States, for example, under the Trump administration. But here we have a government saying that because one academic, one scientist, came up with data, a publication, which could be construed as embarrassing the Turkish government, that he has to be shut up. And, by sh and, and the way they shut him up is to find him guilty of an offense and, and to incarcerate him. This is a very, very slippery slope and a very worrisome sign where a state begins to attack its own and essentially dictates the conditions under which one can function in society. I'll also add that from the perspective of, of Turkey and counterterrorism, the Islamic State, Daesh, as it's also called, we all know that it had its heyday from 2014 to probably about 2016, 2017. Of course, as of October now, almost of 2019, it's a mere shadow of its former self, although it is still around. It still has probably tens of thousands of fighters doesn't have the caliphate, doesn't have the geographical footprint it once did, but it hasn't disappeared nearly as succinctly or neatly as President Trump seems to indicate. We do know that Islamic State was able to attract upwards of 40,000 foreign fighters from over 100 nations worldwide. And here's where it gets interesting. A large percentage of those foreign fighters were able to join Islamic State by traveling through Turkey. They would travel to Turkey, they would cross the, the border between Syria and Turkey and end up in the Islamic State Caliphate. The question then becomes, A, were the Turks aware of this mass migration of jihadis from countries, including Western countries, through their territory into Islamic State? If so, did they ignore it? Did they turn a blind eye? Did they encourage it? Those are all really interesting questions. I think in fairness... We have to acknowledge the possibility that a lot of countries underestimated what it meant to join Islamic State in 2014, 2015. Certainly, I think my own country, Canada, uh, reacted a little bit too late in trying to identify individuals trying to leave the Canada to go join Islamic State. So we can't really, I think, hold Turkey's feet to the fire that much. But it is an interesting question to ask of whether or not Turkish law enforcement, Turkish security intelligence and, and Turkish border authorities were really, in fact, doing the job they had to do a few years ago to try to prevent a large number of people from using their territory to gain access to Syria, to gain access to Iraq, and then join Islamic State. Now, this is really curious, of course, because Turkey has had a long history of fighting terrorism, except that 
those terrorists which really caused the Turks to lose sleep are the Kurds. So the Kurds are a people. They are very ancient people. They happen to speak an Indo-European uh, language, unlike the, the, the Altaic language of Turkey and the Semitic languages of, of Arabic, etc. But they're also long been called one of the largest nations without a country, meaning that there are tens of millions of Kurds they have been trying to get a homeland since the aftermath of the Second World War. There was hope there would be a Kurdish nation created out of the, out of the ashes, if you will, of the Ottoman Empire. It never worked. And so you have a large Kurdish population. About a third of Turkey in the east is Kurdish. Parts of Iraq are Kurdish. Northwestern Iran is Kurdish. And northeastern Syria is Kurdish. But what has happened is that there are there is an element within the Kurdish nation, if I can use that term, which is fed up with not getting a homeland, which is fed up with the discrimination that has been shown to it, especially in Turkey, I'll get back to that in a second, and is therefore taking up violence to try to force the hand of primarily Turkey, but other countries to grant it that homeland. So Turkey has been beset by terrorism, largely from a group called the PKK for the past couple of decades. And I don't have any figures offhand, but I'd be surprised if the casualty total was not in the tens of thousands over many, many decades. So Turkey has a legitimate reason to engage in counterterrorism activities against the PKK. They are a listed terrorist entity in many countries, including my own here in Canada. And therefore, no one would begrudge the Turks the right to identify and neutralize PKK terrorists. In fact, if you read the Turkish media on a regular basis, there are constantly stories every week about Turkish armed forces having quote-unquote neutralized PKK terrorists, i.e. having killed them. What complicates this matter is that historically, Turkey has seen the Kurds, not Kurdish terrorists, but the Kurds themselves, as an unwanted minority in their country. In fact, for many, many decades, Turkey would refuse to acknowledge the existence of the Kurds as an independent nation. And by nation, I'm not referring to a, a political entity with borders, but rather a people, they refer to the Kurds as Mountain Turks, somehow dismissing them as local yokels who spoke a language that was not well-defined, that they were not a well-defined culture, that they were just simply these people that nobody really cares about, and they live up in the mountains in eastern Turkey. This this is obviously false. As I mentioned, Kurdish, the Kurdish nation has a, a many thousands of years of culture, of language and history, and for the Turks to have dismissed them as mountain Turks is part of the problem, not part of the solution. Therefore, we have this campaign of terrorism that's been ongoing for a great deal of time, and the Turks have a lot of experience in this. Their security intelligence forces, I imagine, see the PKK and other Kurdish terrorist groups, of which there are several, as their priority in terms of counterterrorism, in the same way that in the United Kingdom for decades, the number one threat was not Islamist extremism, it was not the far right, it was in fact the IRA activities in Northern Ireland, activities in the Republic of Ireland, and the odd attack in, in England itself. Turkey therefore has every right to conduct a counterterrorism program because these terrorists do pose a threat to the Turkish people. There have been terrorist attacks against the military, there have been Turk terrorist attacks against civilians as well. So just as any country has a duty to protect its own citizens against terrorism, Turkey has that duty as well. What I find curious is that for a country that's been dealing with this terrorist threat for decades, why would they 
have allowed all these foreigners to use Turkish territory to, to transit on their way to fight for Islamic State. If, in fact, they were turning a blind eye, which I think most analysts would agree that they are. They did clamp down later on as the, as the Islamic State became a much better known entity, as the heinousness of Islamic State crimes began to be known more and more by the people of the world. I think the Turks got the message, you got to crack down on this sort of thing. And I, and I know of several cases, including one here in Canada, of a, a woman who tried to join Islamic State uh, by transiting Turkey. She was identified by authorities and turned back. As it turned out, she tried to carry out a terrorist attack in Toronto a couple of years ago, and she was, has in fact found guilty of that and is now in prison. So the Turks didn't always ignore the threat, but they did for quite some time. The question then becomes why? Why would a country that is so used to fighting a war, as, as much as I don't like that term, against a terrorist threat, would ignore a much more significant terrorist threat, i.e. of Islamic State? That question is still out there. We, what we have to turn to next then is where does all this stuff go? So Turkey is still engaged in a counterterrorism campaign against the PKK, not only in Turkey, but across the border into Syria, because the Kurds have established a quasi-state in northern Syria and in parts of, of northern Iraq as well. And I think that Turkey sees this as a threat. They see that this territory that the Kurds have carved out for themselves could serve as a potential base for the planning and execution of terrorist attacks in Turkey proper. What we're seeing then is Turkish forces are getting are going across the border. I've seen regular reports in the, in the world media about instances in which Turkish troops have engaged with, with Kurdish forces, Kurdish militants, Kurdish insurgents, Kurdish terrorists. The, the, the terminology is all over the map, and you know I've talked a lot about terminology in the past. It therefore appears that Turkey is not going to let up anytime soon on its pursuit of what it perceives as a terrorist movement whether it's the PKK or the Syrian Democratic Forces or whatever acronym you want to put there, Turkey certainly sees itself as having the right to engage in activity against a terrorist threat. At the same time, we've had several Islamist extremist attacks in Turkey that have nothing to do with what the Kurds are doing. We've had attacks in Istanbul, we've had attacks in other Turkish cities in which civilians have died. It therefore stands the reason that Turkey is faced with a significant, albeit not existential, terrorist threat. Whether we're talking about what the Kurds are doing or what the Islamist extremists, i.e. Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, the whole grab bag of jihadi groups that we're all used to, all of these actors see Turkey as a potential threat. So where does Turkey's position, what is Turkey's position on this? Well, curiously, you would have thought that it would have relied on its NATO allies to help it in dealing with a situation such as this. But in recent weeks and months, the Erdogan government seems to have been quite upset with the West, United States and its partners, and is now turning to Russia for arms sales to bolster its military. And so I come full circle to, is Turkey in fact a partner of the West or is it morphing into something different? I don't have the answer to that question. I think that the jury is still out. I think a lot of this depends on the person of, of Erdogan himself. There have been recent elections in which Erdogan was trying to maintain control over municipal governance, and he's lost an important election recently. I believe it was in Istanbul, where an opponent who was, doesn't like Erdogan won a vote. That was, that was quite a setback. That was quite unexpected because I think everyone thought that the Turkish government was simply, they would jig the numbers 
in a way that it was seen that er the Erdogan candidate would have won. And it didn't turn out that way. So it seems to me that there are a lot of Turks who are getting fed up with what Erdogan stands for. He certainly is not much of a Democrat. He certainly has engaged in activities that are inimical to Turkey's interests. We'll see where this opposition goes. The government has a lot of levers it can, it, it can use to tamp down on this. So watch this space in terms of how far Turkey will go in trying to undermine Turkish democracy. Watch this space also in terms of where the Erdogan government goes. Where does it see its place in the world? What, who does it see as its primary partners? Does it look at 75 years of NATO history and it wants to put its eggs in that basket? Or does it see itself aligning more with Russia, which from a, from a geo, geographical perspective, of course, makes eminent sense because Russia is right next door, whereas the United States and the NATO partners are, are further afield. I haven't even talked about the Turkish dispute with Greece, which has been going on for 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 centuries, ever since the days of the Ottoman Empire. I do think it's an outstanding question of whether or not we in the West, Canada, United States, Western Europe, and our partners really would see Turkey as still being in our court. I'd like to think that there's enough of a critical mass within Turkey who believe that's still the case. I attended a NATO conference in Ankara about a year and a half ago. I do know that there are Turks, whether it's in the military or civil society, that would prefer to be in the West as opposed to under the, the Russian yoke or under some kind of you know increasing relationship, increasing influence of the Russian state. But as I said, we're going to have to wait until things develop and see where this thing lies. It would be a shame if after all this time, the Turks no longer, or rather I shouldn't say the Turks, the Turkish government of, of President Erdogan no longer saw the relationship with NATO and the relationship with the West as one that it wants to cultivate, as one that it, that it treasures and wants to maintain, but rather is seeing the, sh the sand shifting or is seeing a greater interest and greater benefit for Turkey to turn east rather than turn west. Uh, I'm sure there are other people out there that have views on, on what Turkey is and what it means. These are just my views as a, as a counterterrorism analyst. Uh, the inconsistency of Turkey in terms of its approach to counterterrorism, its obsession with the Kurds, Again, part of that obsession is justified due to Kurdish terrorism, but in many ways, not granting the Kurds some form of cultural autonomy up to political autonomy has in fact made the problem a lot worse than it, than it should be. I don't think Turkey's going away, and I think this debate's going to continue. That's the end of podcast 20. As usual, I would love to hear you hear your views on this. You can access this podcast on a number of social, of social media. You can reach me in a variety of ways by email, borealisrisk at gmail.com. You can go to my website, www.borealisthreatenedrisk.com. You can reach me on Twitter at borealisaves or on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. I'll talk again in a fortnight. Until then, stay safe. It may sound absurd.